This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. It's Recovery Radio, and I'm Steve Martirano. We're here uh, on, on this broadcast and our podcast and wherever else you can find us, and we're talking about very broadly what's now referred to as behavioral health. That covers a lot of things. Uh, essentially, they are, they're mental health issues as they uh, come together with uh, substance abuse. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit of both of those today, but with a primary um, emphasis on a couple of things, one of which is, of course, uh, substance abuse, which is, of course, always uh, much in the news. Uh, that's what's the agenda here on Recovery Radio. We hope you have some time to uh, to spend with us because we like to give you as much good uh, and useful information as we can about these very important uh, important issues. The whole thing, of course, underwritten, sponsored by the good, good people at Retreat Behavioral Health. And as always, they will figure into the program. We'll tell you more about them straight ahead. Before I introduce my guest, I want to make a sort of public service announcement here now that in addition to listening to the program, which we want you to do, um, if, you, if you're in our area, our home base area of the, the Delaware Valley, Lancaster uh, County in Philadelphia, I don't want you to stop from killing those bugs that apparently we have a mandate from the Commonwealth. I don't know, they're lantern flies or something like that, but uh, they're plaguing uh, the country and the world, I hear, and they're supposed to be terrible. And uh, the Commonwealth, bless your heart, uh, among the other states confronting this plague, has literally said, go out and kill them. <laughs> so I don't want you to – you can pause for that as you listen to Recovery Radio. But if you see one while you're listening, you know, kill it, Okay. I mean, you've got a license. You're a 007 on this thing here. <laughs> That's our public service announcement for this edition of the program. We want to welcome Ray Newland to the program. Ray is no stranger to Recovery Radio. He's no stranger to this topic for sure, and we'll find out about that. Ray having been on the program a couple of years ago, right, Ray? Yes. Ray now is in uh, his own private business now. Well, it's not associated with the field, but that doesn't mean he hasn't given up uh, the important work of helping people get sober, and then, well, not so much get sober, but stay sober. Uh, Ray Newland, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, so you are in, you, you have your own business now, you, 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 you don't work in the field directly, but you did, correct? Uh, yeah, I worked at, uh, actually at Retreat here uh, for three years. I was a transportation manager uh, on site in Lancaster. Transportation guys, in case you don't know, are the sort of, I call you guys the last mile. Um, very difficult to get somebody to even consider a treatment. They, have, you know, they have to get to that point in their lives themselves for the most part. Okay, you're going to get treatment. Then there's okay. How do I get there? Well, at the better run facilities, they'll come get you. Absolutely. And and that's where Ray and and this, the whole cadre of these guys who drive folks that and I call it that last mile, but it can be 500 miles. And they and they literally get you to the facility. How long did you did you drive people, or you just manage the uh, the, uh, the department? Yeah, I started out as a driver. Uh, I was a driver for uh, about a year. Uh, then the outpatient facility got to the point where it needed uh, its own supervision and management for uh, the routes and the uh, recovery house runs and things like that. So they put me in charge of that initially, uh, and then uh, Palm Beach location opened up and. My supervisor, John Batten, moved down there, so he placed me in charge of the entire department here in Lancaster. Uh, and you're right. I mean, they're really, uh, you know, it's the unsung heroes of this thing, you know, these guys. I mean, the amount of recovery sometimes that can happen in these vehicles, I think, is immeasurable. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it was an eye-opener for me. I've been interviewing you 
guys in the transportation department for several years now from time to time. And everybody forgets that, you know, you can have the motivation to get to treatment. You can be conscientious about wanting to do that. Uh, the facility can be, can be you know, good and have a great reputation and, and successful. But if you don't get, you know, that last couple of feet, that's tough. So you've had guys, I know you've had guys in the back of the car go, can we pull over and just, can we go get a drink? Just be, And, and you have to be sort of a, a psychologist in that that regard, right? Yeah, you got to be able to speak the language, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of nuance to it, you know, and you do have guys trying to con you and you know get you to stop here and stop there, so you have to kind of be one step ahead of them and just know what they're doing. Yeah, you know, talk them out of it. Yeah, you, we we um, we don't want to go, we don't want to get too deep in this, and we've done these shows, but I mean, you know, you know, there are guys that have stopped at red lights and yeah, <laughs> heard the back off. heard the back door open yeah. and go, oh yeah. my gosh, we lost that guy. <laughs> yeah. we, I'll go around the block once or twice, <laughs> but he's gone. Yeah, so, fast. so the tra- transportation guys and retreat, you know, is uh, just terrific at that. I mean, this isn't a guy sitting by a phone who calls an Uber for you. This is a whole fleet of people. Yep. These are these are people that, uh, yeah, they're, they're safe drivers and all that. Uh, but they also know what this deal is. Absolutely. They, they know how difficult it, it can be to get you that uh, last mile. One of the reasons Ray and others like Ray who do that are uh, good at it is they've been there, done that. Correct. Um, so tell us a little about yourself. Where were you born and raised and the whole thing? Uh, Steve, I was born uh, right here in Lancaster City, 1976, bicentennial baby. Uh, I was raised uh, in a neighborhood called Cabbage Hill, which is uh, – the southwest side of the city, um, you know, row houses, kind of lower middle class environment. Um, lived there my whole life until two years ago. My wife and kids packed up, and we actually live very close to uh, Akron now. Uh, but yeah, I was in the city my whole life, born and raised. What? Uh, uh, how, what? Uh, what was your uh, the, the family background? I mean, there was some substance abuse in the family to begin with. There was. Uh, you didn't call it that in those days, though, right? No, man. You know, my my dad was uh, my dad was an kind of an older. To be having kids, he was 55. He was a World War II veteran, um, you know, B-17, belly gunner, all that. And, uh, you know, he drank. um, But those guys, as you probably know, they weren't really out there seeking any kind of help for anything. They didn't think they had a problem. No, he just just went to work every day and and didn't complain. And and he worked at the same factory for 32 years straight, you know, and just that's what he did. Right, right, right. yeah, that's that's how my dad was. When, but, but of course, your experience with substances didn't didn't work out as as well, correct? No. Tell us about that. Uh, you know, I got involved with uh, high school. You know, I, 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 you know, my background, man. All this, all, all these things happened to me. You know, lost my mother and the kind of thing with my dad and everything. Uh, by the time I got to high school, I was pretty, I was a pretty angry kid. You know, uh, and. Started drinking and drugging in high school. You know, in the beginning, it was very, you know, innocent and kind of casual, I guess. Um, you know, marijuana, alcohol, some heavier things, uh, you know, psychedelics and things like that. This was the, the 1990s, so that stuff was kind of everywhere back then. Sure. Experimented with that. Um, got out of high school, had very little aspirations to do anything except continue to party. Right. And I partied my way right into my first detox at 28 years old. <laughs> 20. 28. 28. How old are you now? Uh, 42 years old. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, how long did that period of abuse um, last, and, and how bad did it get? Uh, I mean, I was on a run probably from, you know, 17 till 28, so a good 10-plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it got pretty bad. Um, I got heavily involved with uh, like benzos, very heavily addicted to those. A lot of uh, powder cocaine use, a lot of alcohol, uh, you know, incarcerations, you know, you name it. Lots of trouble with the law, right? All, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of problems. Yeah, what was the impact on the family during this? Were they, they were aware of this, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, my my mother had passed away, so she was out of the picture. Uh, my dad, my dad was old school, Steve. Like he, his advice for me was stay off the dope, man up. Yeah, you know, and that's really all he knew about drugs, right? Was dope. Uh, so he didn't. I think he probably knew that I was living wrong, but he didn't really know the details. But uh, you know, it, it definitely took a toll on our relationship. Him and I were not close. Yeah, at all, yeah. Unfortunately, um, what? Um what got you to uh, rehab the first time? Oh, man. First time, uh, you know, just consequences upon consequences and, you know, didn't want to go back to jail. Um, yeah, I, I had a desire probably to to make the pain stop. I didn't really necessarily have a desire to stop using, but I wanted my life to change, certainly. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a real common theme yeah. when people go, how did you get to rehab? They go, I don't know, man. Everything else, nothing else was working. Right. Right. How many times in rehab? Uh, there was the first run was one rehab, and then uh, I went back to uh, actually I went to retreat in 2012. Mm-hmm. That was my last inpatient. Yeah. Uh, did you graduate to uh, opioid use? Uh, very no, not not like not like today. I mean, we did experiment with it, but I never had a heroin. Oh, okay. Well, you yeah. dodged that bullet. Yeah, good, thank God. Good, good for you. Thank God. Um, and I, and I, this, how long? So it was twelve. Did you say twelve years ago at, re, at the retreat? No, As a, 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so a few years ago. So you have been sober now um, since then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's terrific. Congratulations. Thank you. And now uh, you you uh, but but you didn't leave this all behind you. Obviously, you you created a uh, a sober living facility. We're going to find out uh, a, a lot more about that. But um, b- before we get to it, so you're you're out of rehab and you and you you go. I think I got a shot here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you chose to stay in the field or get in the field, right? Mm-hmm. What, what was the motivation there to help? But this because you want to help other people, or yeah, I mean, you know, I think it. Uh, it's almost like a, a, a rite of passage. I think for a lot of people to kind of go to, you know, to rehab, they kind of were like, yeah, I want to come here and work someday. And uh, you know, I had that notion to do that. I left the I left the field that I was in for several years to come here and do that. Um, you know, but it was, you know, it was a strong desire to help people, to give back, to be part of something that, you know, is so great, you know, and, and, and an institution like this. So, yeah, that was the desire. Right and, there. and you were uh, you were with Retreat uh, for how for how long? A little over three years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and once again, you, you, you know, you didn't leave it. Uh, you didn't leave it there. Uh, you, you created uh, something called you're the co-founder of something called Cornerstone for Recovery. Correct. How? We'll get into the details of the work they do there straight straight ahead here. But how did every every time I hear of someone who founded a nonprofit or a, a foundation, uh, to most people that's bewildering. How in the world do you do that? I mean, don't you have to have a million dollars to start a foundation? Where did the impetus for you? How did you put that together? Uh, Cornerstone for Recovery. Well, let me just be clear. Uh, we are that is not a nonprofit. We are a for profit recovery right. house, mm-hmm. resident, sober living. Um, I do have a nonprofit, but we'll talk about that. Okay, all right. <laughs> you know, a lot of balls in the air here, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cornerstone for Recovery is uh, I had two friends pass away that were extremely close to me, you know, within about a month's time, and we wanted to kind of do something to, uh, you know, memorialize them and, and offer a uh, 
type of sober living in Lancaster that may not have been available at that time. Um, and very selfishly, I had this idea in my head. You know, I was kind of angry and going through the stages of grief, and I, you know, I wanted to make something that, in my mind anyway, would have been so great that these guys probably wouldn't have died. You know, so mm-hmm. it was really a lot of that in the beginning, just me kind of grieving. Yeah, it's uh, yes, and it's a coping mechanism. It's also it's also a way of. Uh, of, of trying to correct something that uh, should never have happened. Ray right. Newland is our guest. He, uh, as he just explained, is the co-founder of something called Cornerstone for Recovery. He's also, he's not here primarily to talk about that, although I do want to talk about sober living. He's also here to tell us about an, an inc- a really amazing initiative. Uh, and again, we'll get more details straight ahead. It has to do with skateboards. Right. That's right. Ray Newland, our guest. This is Recovery Radio. We have more with Ray. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano is who I am. My guest in the studio is a uh, an alumni, I guess, of uh, both the treatment facility uh, at uh, at Retreat Behavioral Health, as well as a former employee as manager in one of in their uh, transportation department. He joins us now to tell tell us how his uh, substance abuse and subsequent recovery uh, led to uh, a lot of real, real good work that he's doing uh, in helping other people uh, combat uh, the problems of uh, substance abuse. So. Cornerstone was founded. It's a for-profit uh, situation. Uh, I think a lot of people don't quite understand where sober living fits into the the journey people need to make in order to get sober. So, you know, let's let's begin there. Tell us what a sober living facility is about. And uh, sober living, uh, a good sober living facility or a recovery house is a place where uh, you know people go when they're transitioning out of generally inpatient facilities uh, you know they're structured environments uh, rules are in place um, you know curfews things like that uh, where people can go and you know acclimate back to society and uh, have sober support and a safe place you know where they can live for a period of time uh, until they feel ready to transition back into independent living into the into the the so-called re- real world real world yep Sober living facilities are a relatively new phenomenon in, 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 in the context of treating this disease. All too often, the public who, who haven't experienced the problem of substance abuse get their image of it from the media or, or movies, even worse, where – and I've said this a million times – where you go to a facility for 28 days and not only get sober but fall in love with the cute <laughs> you know, uh, clinician there and, and everybody lives happily ever after – uh, the transition from from treatment back into the world is a very tricky moment. Do you remember what it was like for you? Did you didn't Did you go to a sober living facility? Uh, yeah, I actually went to uh, uh, York, PA, which is not far from here. Um, and that was man, that was a long time ago. But I lived in a house over there briefly. So yeah, I did spend some time in one. Um, what know, was your What was your attitude when they said to you, "Look, we here, okay, great. Here's you know what you need to do going forward." Did they recommend that you do sober living? Yeah, they did. And your attitude towards that was what? I mean, honestly, at that point, you know, I didn't really resist much of anything. I didn't really have a lot of ideas, so I, I was all about it. Um, unfortunately, the uh, probation department of Lancaster was not all about it, <laughs> so they made me come back here. But I was there for about a month, and, and I had a good experience, you know. Uh, you know, again, I, I wasn't quite ready for all of it, but I did like being there. You did. I like being around the guys. Yeah, it was good. It was a good time. Yeah. So, uh, people, these are, um, it's a for profit company that, that you have. 
and so so people pay for that. How does he, do do insurance programs pay for that? Do you know? Uh, they don't pay for what we provide. There are some different types of housing that insurance will step in, but we do not work with any kind of insurance companies. Yeah. It's all out of pocket. Yeah. Uh, and and how do you organize? You, you briefly said it for people going. Oh, sounds. I don't know. It sounds like a work camp. What are we talking about? How is how is a typical or you how are, how do Cornerstone organize their sober houses? I mean, is there a is there a, a proctor? Uh, is there a you know a R, what do they used to call them in college? Resi- a resident oh, like uh, RA. Uh, RA. Yeah. Is it and are there are there rule are there chores, divisions of labor? How's it yeah. work? We uh, every house has a, a house manager uh, that's basically in charge of, of everybody. Um, they have a significant amount of sobriety. Uh, generally, we like to, at least a year of sobriety to be a house manager. And uh, they delegate chores, you know, everything from cleaning the bathroom, cleaning the common area, cleaning the sidewalks, uh, things like that. You're assigned a chore that you must complete. Um, You know, there's curfews in place. Some people get placed on a blackout period from, uh, you know, phone calls, families, girlfriends, things like that, just for a brief period of time when they get there. Early on, yeah. Yeah. um, Depending on whether or not they have employment and things like that, they can have a car. So there's a lot of restrictions in place, but it's really for people's best interest. Yeah, and, and nobody's there against their will. Obviously, no. there, there are no bars on the windows. No. You, you come and go. Do most of the guys do most of the guys have work uh, eventually? Yeah, we we do require them to get employment at some point. Um, if they're doing uh, you know different levels of care as far as outpatient and PHP and things like that, sometimes we'll be more lenient. Um, but at some point in the, their journey, they're going to have to start to work and pay for themselves. They can't, you know, live off a of mom. Mm. Who who does the cooking? Uh, there's no assigned cook, so they can pretty much do whatever they want. But I know some of the houses they'll they'll like just kind of team up and make meals for each other. Yeah, they, they, these are male and female separated facilities. Yeah, correct? yeah, we don't have any co-ed recovery houses, <laughs> not yet. Yeah, not, not, <laughs> not yet. Not me. Not yet. Not maybe. <laughs> not maybe ever. Right. Um, how many houses now does Cornerstone operate? We have four male and one female. And um, do you have any difficulty finding people that need sober sober living? I mean, no. It's you know one thing that you know it, it it's kind of uh, just grinds my gears is there's this whole inclination of uh, the addict and the alcoholic is some kind of finite resource and we're gonna like run out of them or something. So. We've never had a problem filling beds, um, and I don't really have any kind of ownership or any kind of claim over any of my residents. Uh, you know, they're free to move and go to a different house and things like that. And I think that attitude uh, is attractive to people. You know, um, so we don't really have a lot of problems. We we have a good reputation. Uh, mm-hmm. My business partner, I got to give him a shout out. His name is Ryan Carmody. He does all of our marketing, uh, and he has a lot of connections. A lot of uh, he knows a lot of people, so we're good. What, what is there a typical length of stay for somebody who goes to a sober living facility? Uh, I'd say probably average is about six to eight months. Um, you know, we have had some folks there for over a year. Uh, when they get to that point, though, we start to gently kind of nudge them, you know, in a direction other than just kind of staying there because it gets to a point where you're kind of warehousing people. Right, you can't really help them. Right, anymore. right, right. There's a transitionary period. Uh, it fit here. So for so people trying to get their heads around this. We always like to tell them that uh, treating substance abuse is, is not one thing. It's a continuum of things that begin one place and end, hopefully, in successful long-term sobriety. And you're just that bridge 
uh, in, into the real world. Just real quickly, well, we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up on the other side. I don't want to get too far behind. Ray Newland is our guest on Recovery Radio. We have more with Ray straight ahead. Stay with us. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. I'm Steve Martirano. We're uh, worried about the program. We we are broadcast, for those of you listening, maybe on a podcast or something, from the Philadelphia area. Retreat, who sponsors the program, the Behavioral Health uh, Facility, is in Lancaster County in our area, uh, opening a few more facilities, one in New England very shortly, and, um, of course, their headquarters, which is in West Palm Beach. Uh, but I tell you all that um, by way of letting you know that the program locally is broadcast over uh, a radio station, but then it's podcasted everywhere. Better podcasts are available, and you know the usual list of suspects and the iTunes and the Google Listen as well as Spotify. We're also on Retreat's website. Our archived programs are there. There's some some dandies there. So uh, we urge you to, and I know more and more people every day listening to podcasts will get into the habit if this topic is of uh, interest to you. Yet you will uh, look for us where those podcasts are available. But I I pause for the moment to tell you about Retreat Behavioral Health. As I said, you pay the freight around here, and they have for several years. They are great, great partners in this effort because while they are a world-class organization, they have a sterling reputation. We're not here to tell you they're the only people in the world that can help you. They've helped loads and loads of people. If you were to ask me who I would recommend, well, I could tell you who I would recommend. But this program is about information and education on the the, uh, topics covered by behavioral health, which, as I said at the beginning, now include mental health issues as well as substance abuse issues. And, of course, very often when those two things come together, retreats a leader in treating them. But I'm going to give you the phone number for uh, informational purposes. If there's any question about anything you've ever heard on this program or any question that you need an answer to because it's occurring in your life right now, uh, this is a great number to have just as a resource. So here's how you uh, reach Retreat Behavioral Health at 855-859-8808. Ray uh, Ray Newland knows that everything I just said is true because he not only went, uh, not only uh, completed a successful treatment uh, stint at Retreat, he also then went to work for them for several years in their transportation department. He's now got his own thing going, and uh, but he has not left the field of helping other people through a couple of initiatives that he's telling us about. One is the uh, he co-founded uh, Sober Living Facilities. It's, it's called Cornerstone for Recovery. They have houses in the Lancaster area. Um, and there's another initiative coming up that we're very excited about here at Retreat because we're going to get behind helping uh, uh, Ray make this happen. It has to do with the skateboards, but we'll find out about that straight ahead. You said you had a nonprofit as well as the uh, Sober Living Facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, fill us in on that. Uh, so uh, the one individual that passed away um, was a, a was basically my best friend. Uh, his name was Anthony Craighead. And, uh, you know, he he passed away, uh, you know, the disease-related overdose uh, it's real tragic. You know I mean, real tragic. So we wanted to do something to kind of honor him and memorialize him um, and make his, you know, passing something positive. Uh, and when we were younger, you know, we were all extremely passionate about the sport of skateboarding. Uh, I'm still a fan. I definitely don't do it anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we were younger, that was really what it was all about for us. And Anthony uh, always would have very gently used skateboards that he would just give to us to kind of, you know, pay it forward kind of thing just so we would have nice things. 
So we wanted to come up with something to honor that tradition, and uh, we came up with the uh, Anthony Craighead Memorial Skateboard Scholarship, where uh, we supply uh, brand new skateboards to local children here in Lancaster and surrounding areas, uh, just in his memory, just to do something nice and, and keep people, you know, keep kids enthusiastic about it, and uh, also provide you know products to kids that may not have the resources to get something new and fresh to keep them enthusiastic, also. Enthusiastic about a lot of things, not just skateboarding, right? right? right. So it's pretty obvious that it's great that you would give something to someone who doesn't have the means to do it. Mm -hmm. We understand the benefit of that. But I'm fascinated by the skateboard thing because that's a real culture all to itself. Absolutely. And there's great examples of that. There's a wonderful movie and documentary about those kids in Venice, California. Mm -hmm. The Lords of Dogtown oh, yeah. was the name of the movie. Uh, there's a great documentary um, ab about them as well where they talk about the rise of skateboarding and how um, tight a group it is. Mm -hmm. You skateboarded. You said it was the love of your young life. Mm -hmm. They're interesting kids because they're, they do things that look incredibly – they are reckless and crazy. But it's interesting about willing to take a risk like that. And I mean I look at that and go, how do you practice that? Don't you? What's, what's going on in the head of a kid who just wants a skateboard? You know, I, I mean, for me, it was, uh, I mean, back then it wasn't even nearly as huge of a sport as it is now. Um, you know, it was kind of a counterculture thing back then. We were kind of going against the grain. It was very rebellious. It was an outlaw thing, right? Yeah, majorly, major outlaw thing. And uh, that was what attracted me to it in the beginning. Um, you know, so you would find some kids that were like-minded, also rebellious, you know, and you would just start doing it. Um, but, you know, you touched on something I think is very important. Um, you know, it is a huge subculture of people and uh you know people that get involved with this nowadays especially you can make a make a lot of money as a professional skateboarder amateur skateboarder and these people you know literally have rock star lives you know they're 18 years old 19 years old getting free products money just to ride a skateboard all day so you know what that is going to lead to is a lifestyle of partying um and you know, the culture in and of itself is a bit like that anyway, you know, professional or not. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a lot of these of these kids that get involved with this probably have, uh, you know, propensity to maybe turn out to be a bit, <laughs> you know, on the negative side of the spectrum. You know, I'm not trying to generalize. I did. You know, I know a lot of kids that did skateboard that went on to be successful, but I know a lot of kids that did not. Um, and I think uh, – you know, it is a specific thing, and that gift of, gift of identification that you can have with these kids through all this stuff is very important. Yeah, that that, that that's the subculture or the uh, of skateboarding uh, sh shares in common uh, what a lot I think a lot of subcultures share, and that there's a there's a there's a good aspect to a mm -hmm. subculture or a group, and there's some downsides, and the and the good is that you're bonding and you have people like you. Mm -hmm. um, the downside, though, I think of a closed system like that is that it can if you're all doing the same thing it mm -hmm. looks normal yes 100 percent. and and that that is something that substance abuse shares with any subculture mm -hmm. right i mean you had experiences where people always say didn't you know you were out of control why didn't you know just like you said everybody was doing it i thought it was normal to be you know 20 years old and you know being unemployed and you know waking up at 12 o'clock every day and drunk by four and you know I just thought that was normal all my friends were doing everybody, it everybody was doing it right. the, the other phenomenon I want you to re react to this is that people go well gee didn't you notice that you were, like, you, were, you were different than your friends you start out 
youthfully experimenting like most young people do, and then you go someplace else, and people go, why didn't you notice that your your friends weren't doing that? Answer that's that you get new friends, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You just seek out lower companionship. You know, <laughs> the the other well, or or sim, you know, like minded, yeah, you know, similar, yeah, you know, the right. same kind of people. The other thing about skateboarding that's fascinating, and I think uh, can really have a therapeutic uh, aspect to this thing, is that I forget who it was. I might have been Jerry Seinfeld of all people, or somebody like that, who said he was watching skateboard kids in, in New York or something, and he said those. That kind of person's going to be okay because they're they're willing to try these things oh, absolutely um, over and over again and yeah they look crazy and everything but it it can be a real confidence builder can it oh yeah um, you know it's really you against you know yourself it's not a team thing at all it's mm-hmm. it's you against you know yourself and your own fears uh, so you know if you can get good or not even good but just do tricks and learn and just become confident on that. You know, on, on a skateboard, it is a confidence builder. I mean, it's you know, it's a huge adrenaline rush. You know, bombing hills and and things like that. I mean, it's a huge adrenaline rush, and you know, it's kind of there's some swag to it. You know, I mean, people, you know, girls always like skateboarders, and you know, the whole thing. It's you know, you're cool. You got cool sneakers. You got cool clothing. So absolutely, yeah. So do, you, do you think? I mean, for people who are listening, going skateboard, substance yeah, abuse. Give me, a, give me a break. Do you really, you really think there can be a therapeutic? Um, value to people you give somebody a skateboard you, you you know you know he's at risk here's a skateboard you think there can be a therapeutic value to that uh i don't know if it's you know what i think we can do is uh let you know children know you know that that the world cares about them you know what i mean just by doing something kind um you know and a skateboard is a symbol of something but if they're already slightly interested in the sport you know, hey man, here, look, here's the story behind this. You know, uh, you know, do this thing, and, and you know, we have a, a paper we hand them. It's a story of Anthony. You know, so it just inspires in them that you know, uh, negativity can turn to positivity. You know, and people care. You know, and hopefully they carry that. How important is that to remind somebody? How and by the way, how how old are the people you try to get the skateboards to? Uh, we generally try to get uh, elementary school kids and junior high school kids. Are you yeah. go? Do you go into schools and talk to them and stuff about? That? Are they not yet? They come to you? Not yet. Yeah. Uh, we are in the process of becoming a certified five hundred one c three. So when that happens, we're going to try to do more outreach work. Right now, we're just kind of working with some uh, administrators and some people locally that I know that just kind of turn us on to people. But we have big plans to do things like you're talking about. Yeah. What? Uh, so how do um, how does the, the nonprofit get their the skateboards? People donate them or money, and you go get them. And how's it how's it all work? Uh, we have had uh, a lot of people donate things. Uh, we did a couple different fundraisers. We have and uh, you know, we've done some uh, T-shirt designs that we've sold. Uh, and the profits went to uh, you know the fund. Uh, there was a magazine here in Lancaster called Ravello that featured me and the the charity, and they did a huge fundraiser for us. Uh, but yeah, we just get yeah people just help us out and donate and donate money. Well, we, we we're going to get uh, more information on how people can uh, can do that because as, as I said, on first glance you'd go skateboards, really, um, but it all makes abundant sense, particularly when you begin at the simple notion of it's important to tell somebody, particularly when they're young, that somebody cares, which is almost universally lacking when somebody winds up with a substance abuse problem. They think, what the hell? No one cares. Why should I? This is Recovery Radio. We have more with our guest, Ray Newland. Straight ahead. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you. This uh, program has been fascinating as far as I'm concerned because when I saw the suggestion that was made by somebody around here that we talked to uh, to Ray about a skateboard initiative, I said, okay. <laughs> but uh, again, I, you know, I learned something new each and every time I have somebody in there. Ray Newland, um, who had his own problems with substance abuse, uh, sober now uh, seven, eight years at this point, um, has his own uh, own business. Is it your own business now you're in? Yes, sir. Uh, what do you do, by the way, right now? What are you doing? Oh, uh, well, my business, my full-time occupation, I work for uh, a company called Paul Davis Restoration. Ah. Give him a quick plug. It's just uh, insurance mitigation work, fire, water, mold damage. Ah. Well, you're busy all the yes. time then. Uh, it hasn't stopped Ray, though, from uh, continuing his effort to help a lot of people who have been down the same road he was uh, He was in. He's, he's, a, he's an inspiration all by himself. Uh, with the foundation, with the uh, creation of Cornerstone, which is a sober living business that, that he co-founded, as well as his uh, nonprofit, which we're talking about right now, that's engaged. In, well, uh, primarily, it's a memorial to a friend who uh, who died of a drug overdose. Uh, and his love of skateboarding and combining all that in a terrific, terrific idea. I know Retreat wants to get very much involved in helping you uh, talk about that. But it's not just you doing this. Tell, uh, some other people are involved in the foundation? Uh, yeah, we have uh, the co-founder and also a fellow board member is uh, a gentleman named Nick Ashby. And uh, he actually was a staff member here as well. Um, Nick has uh, – he was a friend of Anthony's like me, and uh, he was really the co-founder of this. With me, uh, he had, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, he moved to Boston recently, so he's up there doing a lot of uh, outreach stuff and some kind of promotional stuff up there. Yeah, yeah. I spoke briefly to uh, to Nick a couple of uh, weeks weeks back. Yes, it's difficult to talk to a guy who's probably rooting for the Patriots. Yeah, no, he it'll, it'll never happen. <laughs> I told him we'll all disown him. <laughs> Boy, that's a t- that's a t- I got to tell you something. It's tough to live among those people. <laughs> well, he'll be all right. <laughs> okay, good for him. Um, so now uh, we want to give people a, 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 what's referred to as a call to action. Uh, certainly, we want them to help you and your foundation. So, want to take take a moment and give us the uh, the name of the foundation again and how people can reach you and find out more about it. Okay, uh, so the Anthony Craighead Memorial Skateboard Scholarship. Uh, we do a Facebook page. Um, there's information on there. Uh, the retreat Facebook page has a link right now to uh, give donations. Um, and as I said before, as soon as the the nonprofit is established, we'll probably get a uh, a working website and uh, some things like that. But right now, the best way is to go on the Facebook page or the link on the retreat Facebook page to donate. And, yeah, because because you know it's the the mother's milk of these efforts is that the generosity of uh, of people have have you are you guys thinking about things like skateboard exhibitions and having you know kids come watch guys who really know what they're doing and absolutely fundraisers and stuff it, like that i mean kind of a, a goal of mine um and one thing we want to do is uh like i was talking about before a lot of these pros these really big name people in the industry are now sober so uh, i do want to eventually reach out to some of those guys and maybe Bring some in not only for an exhibition but also kind of a, a recovery meeting where they could speak and tell their story. Uh, also do a demo. Yeah, yeah. you know they would be uh, they would be uniquely uh, qualified. And and there are so, there are a handful of high profile celebrities and athletes mm-hmm. who have stepped out mm-hmm. uh, and and talked about their struggles. Um, but there aren't many in that field, right? And and I would guess there's at least as high an incident of abuse in that community as in 
you know, rock and roll or sports, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think they're really public about it. The only reason I even know is just because I'm kind of in the culture and I follow them on Instagram and I read things about them. Uh, and these guys are all pretty accessible. You know, a lot of them, although they were, you know, pretty huge names in the industry, people don't really know them. So they don't have a, a big ego or anything. You can kind of just hit them up on Instagram or social media and they're, they're very responsive. One of, one of the things that anybody in this field uh, wants to accomplish uh, over, the, over the long haul is to demystify the disease of addiction, uh, uh, try to get the stigma removed from this. And one of the things that's always struck me about particularly um, entertainers and, and musicians, they're in a t- they, they, they used to walk a tough line. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get sober and they did, but you couldn't go out on stage and present yourself as a, a god of rock and roll and then talk about sobriety right. easily right. because it seemed a, a, a contradiction. Yep. Uh, that's changing mm-hmm. because people now understand that this isn't a moral failure mm-hmm. or even a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. This is a disease. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always uh, kind of equate this to uh, early 1980s when, when AIDS was was pre- prevalent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing. Um, you know, we had people back then basically saying, you know, these people deserve all this. And nowadays that stigma is, for the most part, gone. So I know that that can change, and I'm a big proponent of ending the stigma. Yeah, uh, and uh, we, I, I agree with you. It often seems like it's it's over, and then every now and then you'll – you know, you realize that in a broader circle of people, there's still folks right, right. who don't who don't get it. They are usually people who have not had it descend upon them. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, uh, we have lots of folks in who you know have been through this struggle and and then try to do something to help. Uh, I haven't run into anybody who's doing it um, as I I think as cleverly as you guys are because as I said it wouldn't have occurred to anybody that there's a link there. Uh, uh, Ray uh, Ray Newland, one one more time on how they get a hold of you guys. Uh, you can look us up on Facebook, uh, Anthony Craighead Memorial Skateboard Scholarship. Uh, you can find my contact information on uh, cornerstoneforrecovery.com. Uh, we also have an Instagram page. The Instagram handle is Craighead Frontside Shove is our Instagram handle. And uh, Nick Ashby, Dan Abercrombie, and myself are the board members on that. Well, I thank, to the, uh, thank those guys as well. And Ray, it's uh, uh, great to have you back here again. And uh, w- when, when you really get rolling on this, if you'll pardon the pun, um, come on back. All right. Thank you, Steve. Ray Newland, our guest here on Recovery Radio. Hey, everybody, enjoy uh, the rest of your life. And uh, look for us, as I said, wherever finer podcasts can be had. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.